Welcome to my den. Have you ever heard the term cottywomple? Yes, cottywomple. <laughs> I certainly had not until today's show with my guest, David Kepron, who has opened me up to a whole new world of words, of language, and of creativity. The definition of cottywomple is to travel in a purposeful manner toward a vague destination. And that's really been the story of David Kepron's life. You see, David is the former VP of Marriott International. He was their VP of Global Design Strategies. And while he was at Marriott, he focused on the creation of compelling customer experiences for a lot of the different brands we're familiar with from Marriott, including the Renaissance, Weston, the Autograph Collection, and Gaylord Hotels. David today takes us on a journey through essentially the implementation of Wample in the corporate spectrum. He, he takes us on a journey through his brain process for how he designed experiences for global brands, took innovative risks, and helped to build teams who sought input from my generation, from native digitals, who see the world fundamentally different than the leaders who are currently in power today. What's interesting about David is when you look at his website and all the things that he's done, I love going to the page that is his art. You see, not only is David a successful executive of a, of a global brand, he is also an artist. You'll see avant-garde paintings of jazz musicians from Tony Williams to Tina Turner. It gives me hope that even a successful executive who is incredibly intelligent and who I learned so much from takes the time to do art that's based on his true soul passion. And he actually has a few sons who are jazz musicians, which I, you know, I, I love jazz. So he is speaking my language and you'll get to hear that today. I would highly encourage you go check out David's book called Retail Revolution, why creating right brain stores will shape the future of shopping in a digitally driven world. Check out his book and you can do that at his website, davidkepron.com. David, K-E-P-R-O-N.com. Also check out his podcast if you enjoy our conversation today. It's called the Next Level Experience Design Podcast. And I actually have an interview coming up on there with David in a few weeks. You're listening to Native Digital, Native Analog, the show where we unpack the collisions and commonalities between my generation and yours. I believe that if you don't have a Native Digital on your board of directors, your leadership team, or at least one you pay to pester you like a fly in your ear, your business won't survive. Let's change that today.
Before we dive in, I want to remind you that this show is brought to you by Overture Consulting. And if you're a leader or business owner in a mid-sized company and you want to improve the retention of employees under age 30, you've got to sign up for our free masterclass that's held the second and fourth Thursdays of every month. And we'll give you tactical strategies in that masterclass to make you a top native digital employer. And you can register for that at Hannah G. Williams.com forward slash get that shit. And now hang on to your seats or your time machines if you're cool like that and join me in my living room with the amazing David Kepron. Hey, David, how are you doing today? I love this opportunity, you know, <laughs> being in your living room virtually. It's kind of a fun thing. So I'm sitting back. I'm already to go. I know this is going to be uh, this is kind of like turning the tables um, on us. So, you know, I love being interviewed because so often I keep, you know, interviewing other people in my, in my day job. So when you did an amazing job when I was on your podcast, that was so much fun. And in fact, this last week, I found a new artist, a, a singer, a French one. Her name is Lazara, I think is how you pronounce it. And I thought of you because she has like this retro look, like she's stepping out of the fifties or the sixties and she's got like the big, pin, you know, big pin curls and whatnot. But she, her voice is so like sultry and jazzy. And instantly the picture that came to mind is one of like looking at the gallery on your website of all yeah. of the art pieces you've done. <laughs> so you know, it's, I thought it's of you. amazing. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, thank you. That's that's always good to hear. You know, I've uh, that's been a passion of mine since I was a kid. I think you know, my mom said that I was copying Christmas cards. You know, um, when I was like three years old, and and always in painting. And and thanks to her, frankly, you know, I I got into um, a painting school um, as an after school program when I was nine years old. And then uh, that was sort of the regulator and all the other crazy shit that was going on in my life <laughs> as a teenager, going to that studio. And having time to paint really was, you know, just one of those places that I, you know, found myself and my energy and a sense of agency and, and the rest of the world disappeared. So it was and, and then that carried, you know, forward, you know, through a career. And then this past year and a half, as you know, uh, with the pandemic, I just committed, you know, I called it my creative sabbatical. So I've been painting and writing and, um, you know, doing the podcast and things like that. So it has um, it's funny how things come around. You know, but it is what the great the regulator. First, oh, no, no kidding. And so um, when you were nine, what was mm. the first thing you ever painted? Funny you should ask that question. Because uh, I was up in my uh, up in Montreal where I was born and raised. And uh, we my brothers and I are uh, cleaning out my parents house of, of like 65 years of stuff, you know. And in the basement, I find these old paintings of mine that used to be on my cottage wall or my parents cottage wall uh, north of, of Montreal. We used to be big skiers. And um, it was actually a forest scene. And there was two things we did. One was a forest scene, which was all done with palette knife and it was all red and, you know, sort of alive. And then the next one was this curving, uh, you know, country road with a barn and a silo. It's kind of funny you know, when I think of it. Um, but yeah, and then I had a fascination with architecture and barns, you know, and, and I ended up getting into architecture school years, years later. So when you were nine, you painted the forest before you started the more architecturally oh, yeah. themed things? Yeah, I, yeah, I, it, right. And I go, you know, I'm just thinking now, um, I remember being in the Canadian system's a little different than American in terms of what you do in terms of high school, whatever. But 
uh, I guess we'll call it junior college. You know, my mom was saying to me, my mom again, uh, she said to me, hey, you know, um, you got to go to university, you know. And I said, yep. And I said, uh, uh, I don't know what to go into. You know, I was thinking about pre-med and because my dad was a dentist, my mother was a nurse, my older brother was a biochemist. Um, and uh, I thought, well, that's just a natural course. And I liked human biology. I just didn't like sick people too much. And, and that kind of seemed like it wasn't going to work. So my, <laughs> so my mom said, well, you like art and you like science. Why don't you go into architecture? And I had really no idea what that was. You know, I thought it was drafting. Um, and it ended up being a little bit of a circuitous route getting in. I was I did a psychology focused degree first and then ended up by serendipity getting into architecture school because someone didn't show up for registration. Then they called me and said, hey, do you want to go to architecture school? And I said, sure. How long do I have? And they said, well, uh, until about noon, you know, oh my to, to make a decision. <laughs> so I did what any, you know reasonable person does he calls his girlfriend who is now my wife of 30 plus years and said what do you think lou should i should i go to architecture school and she goes absolutely you should go and you know the rest is history and i hated every moment of it for for the first two years because i just wasn't an engineer you know and uh but the drawing and painting classes were great do you regret any of any of your, I guess, jungle gym journey around from art to possibly, you know, med school to architecture school and then to experience design? Like what are there any parts you regret or you would have done differently? Um, you know, to re, to read, I don't know. I don't think I regret. Um, I have reevaluated a lot, you know, about things that I believe to be true that didn't quite pan out the way I expected them to. Uh, like, for example, the pandemic, you know, and thinking I had a whole trajectory set upon leaving Marriott, what was going to happen. Of course, that didn't happen. Um, no fault of my own. It's just the world shifted on its axis and, and uh, everything changed. So, no, I don't I don't regret. I mean, I probably have some stupid things I did as a teenager that I regret doing, you know, uh, because they were just you know, I was thinking, you could have died for God's sakes. You know, you didn't. But so those kinds of things I but no, I don't think I regret. I think I take it all as. Uh, I've always been interested in having as many different experiences as I, as I can have, you know, um, and, and going each route. I was tried to, in second year architecture, I didn't like it. I was going to get out and go to um, a graphic design school because I really thought, well, I really want to paint and I want to draw and I want to be in that sort of headspace as a career. And I didn't do it. And then architecture became really great because I got beyond all the, you know, pure sciences. I found a great tutor. Um, who showed me how to understand problems in three dimensions and model making and by drawing them and all that I could do. And once I could do that, all of a sudden, all those things that seemed to make no sense, all of a sudden began to make sense because I learned I was a visual spatial learner. It took me until second year university to figure it out. But uh, yeah, it became a remarkable career you know, along the path. But I've always been I say multidisciplinary, you know, been interested in a lot of different things, um, sort of compulsively curious, I guess, you know, always wanted to find out how things work and, and what happens if you press this button. Like, I'm not the guy you, you want to have saying, don't touch this because I'm, I'm going to, that's just like an invitation for me you know, to touch it or to press it or something, you know? Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. Well, and that's such a good perspective to have of you're able to bounce around different places, not regret it, but definitely, you know, learn something. And so I have to ask one of the things that I struggle with, and I know so many people and especially, you know, early twenties, even late teens struggle with right now is this feeling that we're already long gone. 
like if we were ever going to do anything with our lives, we would have had to start when we were 10 or sooner. There's just this idea of the fear of missing out that we're always running this, this race, this battle that we're never going to be able to overcome. And it's, it's a struggle. So from your perspective, I mean, okay, this is the only show we get to say how old we are right, right here on the show. So I'm, I just turned 24 and how old are you, David? Old enough to be your father. <laughs> How's that? My dad is 50. How old is he now? 51, I yeah. think. Well, I'm older than your father, but you know, okay. ne- never mind. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm good with it. I, you know, age is a state of mind, I think, except for my left knee doesn't like to do all of the stuff. <laughs> Chalk that up to being, you know, a triathlete and a university football player and things like that and a skier. So my knee's Fair enough. Mind. But, um, so if you're over yeah. over 50, so just let's say, you know, a couple generations past, or at least one generation older than me. So did you have that sense when you were in your 20s, that that sense of like every I'm too late, like there there's no hope for me? <laughs> well, I often thought there was no hope for me, but not because I was late. <laughs> no, not because of that. <laughs> yeah. Mostly because people told me <laughs> there's no hope for you. Um no, I, I, you know, we lived in a very, and I hate to, to frame it up this way, you know, and, and we always used to make those jokes, you know, when you you uh, talk with your parents and they go, you know, in my day, you know, and then they run into this diatribe about how tough things were. But the reality was, is that we didn't live in a world where the time frame of experience was exponential. I mean, maybe it was exponential, but it wasn't felt. We were on the very low end of that exponential rate of change curve um, in the early 60s, right? And 70s. So, although, I mean, I was born in the 60s. So, you know, in the late 70s, early 80s, you know, things literally did seem to be slower because, you know, you had to do crazy stuff like write a letter on paper and put like a, with a, a stamp and stick it on and put it in the mailbox and wait for seven days. For wait, it to do show that up. sound again? <laughs> that's, that's, that's the sound of me licking a stamp. Um, and, you know, you, you had a built in uh, sense of um, of patience for the fact that things were going to take longer. And I remember, let's say, late 90s. Now, let's jump a few years ahead. Um, all of a sudden, you know, I got my home computer. I'm running in a small office in my house, and we're trying to do business, you know, over the Internet. And, you know, we literally had dial-up modems, right, that crazy sound that you, you can now pull off of YouTube or someplace. Uh, and you had to wait, and, and you just did. But I think as time has gone on, we've become so accustomed to dealing with things that are exponentially faster in those deltas, I say, between this technology advance and the next one are becoming increasingly smaller. So there is a natural, I think, inclination to thinking that I can't keep up because we can't actually keep up. You know, we're just not built to be able to do that. And so I I appreciate that sense. um, But there is a lot of life ahead of you, you know, And, and just as for whatever it's worth, you know, I started out in architecture and I've always stayed in those careers. But um, I've changed jobs pretty much, I would say, on a five-year to seven-year cycle. Uh, I was, you know, running my own design firm, working in a small office in New York, then running my own design firm, then going to be a partner in a, a Philly-based firm, and then going back to New York and, and Charlotte. So I was moving around a lot. Now, maybe that was because um, the world of retail design, which is where I focused 20 years of my career, um, was always quickly moving and shifting. 
uh, and, and it was pretty off, you know, you pretty frequently you'd see people who were your cohorts, you know, who were moving from office to office or company to company. Um, but we never had that sense of, of time screaming by and, and, and the, I think the built-in anxiety, that's a natural reaction to that. It just wasn't part of our experience. So, um, so I, but I, I think I, gosh, I, I was going to say, I don't know whether I see it in my sons. I have a 19 year old and a, a 22 year old. And so, um, I'm not sure. I, I think they feel sometimes more hopeless about the state of the world, you know, that it's burning and, you know, that climate change is an issue and the racial injustice and social inequities and sort of, you know, all of those things that are very concerned about the social issues, you know. Um, but I don't think they, I don't know. I mean, I know this is kind of a longish answer, but my inclination was when I was in my 20s is I never thought about an end game, you know, and I, and, and I sometimes... I say now because my younger son, Ben's really into crypto investing. And uh, sometimes we get concerned about that because it's an unknown thing for me. But I say to my wife, oh, look, man, if I was 19 years old and I was investing like Ben's investing, you know, we would not be doing some of the things we're doing now. We would have been having that, you know, villa in the south of France and, and all of those kinds of fantasy based things that you think about. Uh, so on, on, and they're smart. I mean, frankly, their access to information, you know, um, for, for that whole Gen Z, you know, generation is just so abundant that they are intuitively more tapped in, I think, to what's going on around them. Well, I love your long answer because that's, <laughs> it's such a great way to like paint some of this distinction between the slower pace of life as you described it, or maybe not even, maybe, maybe the best way to put it is what I heard you say is almost a luxury of not having to have an end game. It's like that idea, at least from your story that I can feel or sense as you were describing that is you had the luxury of figuring out where you wanted to go through different paths or that, that creativity or uh, what did you call it? Compulsive curiosity, yeah, right. yeah. <laughs> just, just finding, you know, what you loved and exploring it. And I think that's honestly a very, wise perspective that a lot of my generation could learn from because it is very easy to get caught in that trap of complete the complete cycle of either what you described with your sons of feeling hopeless about the you know our justice system or climate change or to get caught in the personal trap of individual lack of individual effort meaning anything it's like i'm just getting lost you know i'm mm -hmm. getting lost in the wave so yeah. Anyway, it's kind of a tangent, but I'm so glad we went down it because that, that is such a helpful picture to see what would it have been like, you know, if we grew up in that slower pace in a sense. You know, it's interesting because um, I think there are two and not the two dissimilar paradigms, although they live in different, I was going to say contexts, I guess, temporal contexts. When I was in my 20s, I, I was very much focused on now, what I'm doing now, what I'm doing tomorrow, how am I going to grow this business? What's the next job I'm going to get? Um, how do I, you know, what's happening on Friday night and am I training for the next triathlon or whatever it is? And, and it was very much focused in the moment with not a whole, like I said, not, not a very long range view. And the runway looked really long, but I didn't actually often look at it. You know, I didn't look you know, out 30, 40, 50 years and go, gee, I wonder what it'll be like when it be 65 or 70. Um, Thankfully, I have good genes in my family that suggest that I probably will live into my late 90s, which I'm very happy about uh, because I need all the runway I can get right now. But now if you take that and say, oh, 
Well, let's look at today's generation. They too actually live in, to use Emily Dickinson's um, expression, you know, the future is a series of nows uh, or something like that, uh, because there almost is no other opportunity to be fully immersed in now because whatever was in the past is disappearing from you faster than it has ever disappeared before. So it's like you're living, you know, your life in the front row seat of a bullet train and, you know, looking to what used to be disappears really quickly. So you those those connections to tradition and history and things that lived a long time. Um, become uh, less visible or maybe more occluded. And then you might think that they become less um, less necessary to, to rely on as a way to come up with a strategy for how to deal what's for what's next. So the bottom line is, I think in either case, uh, how good are you living in a now? How much time do you spend sort of relying on nostalgia because it's cozy and you can call up all these things from your sort of, you know, recent or distant past and those memories are immutable. They don't change. Or how much time do you spend looking towards the unknown future, which is only going to become increasingly unknown, which to be your point has a sense of, um, sort of impending doom or a sense of in, instilling a sense of anxiety. And so I'm not saying don't look at nostalgia or don't look at, at don't have a sense of hope for the future, um, but it's a sort of function of how much time do you spend living in those other worlds rather than in, in the present world. And I think that's really important. So, so true. And, you know, it's interesting you say that because I've spent the last couple of weekends helping my grandparents clean out their house. My grandfather, unfortunately, he just got diagnosed with cancer. And so we're trying to like clear out his space. So he has to move, you know, he, he, he's been in the basement of their house or downstairs room, and now he's going to be living upstairs anyway. So we're going through all of these, you know, relics that my grandparents have held on to for years and years and years probably some of them since my great, great grandparents passed them down. Yeah. And, you know, we're going through and we're finding China sets here and jewelry there and, you know, base, baseball cards, just all sorts of things. And probably if you spent the time, you could put those things on eBay and sell them and probably make some money. There's some really beautiful hand carved, for, for example, my grandmother in her living room, she has this hand carved bar that is made out of mahogany and her great grandfather apparently had it commissioned in Africa. And it was, wow. it's beautiful. It's got, you know, animals all over it. Anyway, we were looking at all of these objects over the weekend and we've got like a dumpster outside just like chucking stuff. And it made me recognize in that moment this distinct contrast between living in the now, which is honestly what's driven a lot of minimalism among my generation sure. versus hanging on to all of these things, like all this stuff from so many generations. And, you know, I'd, I'd ask my grandmother, hey, you know, can this be chucked or can we donate this? And she would say, oh, but that, you know, the condition she would give me for why to keep it was simply, oh, that belonged to your great grandmother. And I'm sitting here thinking, you know, I, as soon as you pass away, as morbid as that is, like, as soon as you die, though, I'm not going to touch that. Like I, it's going in the trash can either now or in 20 years, you know, like, so <laughs> we'll wait till you're not here, grandma, and then we'll throw it away. <laughs> exactly. Which I, but... I, it sounds horrible, right? 
Hannah, I tell you, I, I so understand this. My, um, uh, my, both my parents passed away in February of 2020, just before the pandemic. My dad at 97, my mom at 88. Um, ironically, my mom first and then my dad literally two weeks later. And that's not atypical, right? You, know, you hear those stories of people who were married for 70 years or whatever. Um, but it, because of the pandemic, we haven't had any option to go back to Montreal, where I grew up, and to clear out their house. So when I was saying I was clearing out their house, that's what we were doing. And it's the same thing. I was reading notes from faculty council meetings because my father was a professor at McGill University in the dentistry, the dentistry department from like 1956. <laughs> and I was thinking, who keeps this amount of stuff? It's just like, so our task as sons is to clean out you know, this house. But it is interesting to to go through those things and to find them. And then you do run. The, OK, and the question between the remaining sons is, OK, um, do you want this? And, and I think it's nice, but it's literally going to go from a box in this basement to a box in my basement and it'll never come out again. With the exception of one thing, um, I saved uh, my grandmother actually had done all this uh, crocheting of beautiful tablecloths and just they were really fine and gorgeous. And uh, we saved all of that. So when we came back um, home in, in Maryland for uh, New Year's, uh, for New Year's dinner, I pulled out this table set, you know, and we put down all the fine china and all of the, you know, beautiful glassware and things like that. And it was just a very different experience, you know, to to have that. But I, I do think that back in the day, I mean, I'm prior to me, even in, in my generation, I guess I'm at the very, very end of the boomers. Um, I don't think I'm wrong about this. Someone will probably take me to task on it. But the deal was acquisition, right? And the more you had, and of course, there was this conspicuous consumption mentality that was driving a lot of the economy. And then, okay, um, you know, but let's remember these people who grew up in the depression and didn't, I mean, literally, you know, didn't have shoes and walked around and things like that. Um, and, and so the acquisition of things was a way to sort of, I guess, get some sense of permanence about things. And but you do get to that point, yeah, where you go, okay, well, now that you've got all of it, you know, now that I filled my pantry, what do I want to do next? Um, and I think people typically, you know, change to filling their heart, you know, or their soul or, or and they do it through other means that aren't going to be through that stuff. And so it is, but it is, it's hard to throw some of those things away. Um, and I like I got t-shirts from when I was a kid that I've kept from, you know, sports events or things like that. And then I would have a hard time giving them away. But if I understand the way you're going to be clear in your life and live soulfully or mindfully, you're supposed to clear out all that stuff, <laughs> you know, and yeah. get rid of it. And if you're not using it, if you haven't used it in a year or like a month or something like that, it's supposed to go away. Um, I have trouble doing that still, though. I, I get it. Yes. Well, and it's it's difficult going through my grandparents' things and hearing, you know, especially when, you know, my grandparents will put so much value on the things they were going to give us or, you know, things they were going to leave us that, you know, you want to say, hey, actually, that doesn't actually really carry value for me whatsoever. But you don't want to say that. You don't want to come across as rude. So anyway, the, the point being they're speaking of, you know, things that that fade or whatever. I think you're absolutely on the head that it's not going to be the stuff that matters now and in the future, especially to my generation. 
it's going to be the memories, the experiences and, and all of that. And this is, <laughs> this is a perfect segue. We just like set ourselves up for this to talk about just experience design in general, mm. because this is what is, I have so many questions for you about your time at Marriott and before that, but just talking about, you know, when obviously my generation hasn't created the experiences that, that we experience right now that was created by your generation and my parents generation who said, you know what, we're headed toward an experience driven world. How do we get there faster and how do we do it better? And how do we use technology to get us there? And I read an article you wrote, it must've been six years ago now, 20, can you believe 2016 was six years ago? <laughs> yeah. Uh, but it's, yeah. Okay. Well, that's a whole other podcast. We'll talk about <laughs> this idea of teleporting through life or something. You yes. Know? Some, something. We, I can't wait until there's some simple, well, there's never going to be a time machine, but we'll see. Um, um, so the, you wrote an article six years ago in brain food and it was called something like to boldly go. And it was talking about how Marriott was creating uh, teleport yeah. at the time. And so anyway, it begged the question and I wanted to just talk about your experiences at Marriott and how, you know, Marriott to me as a Gen Zer is a brand that is on the forefront of a lot of hotel experience design. And it started honestly the differentiation in my head started just a few years ago and I'm trying to pinpoint where it happened for me but I'm pretty sure it was around 2017 or 2018 when Marriott started quickly acquiring a lot of the more boutique small brands that I was more familiar with and so what ended up happening in my brain is you know now I'm like I exclusively travel Marriott when I'm looking at hotels over you know IHG or or any of the other uh, brands and so just thinking about this article and, and your experience with teleport and other experience driven technologies or trials and errors that Marriott had over the years, what were some of those ups and downs in experience design that, that you went through and what did you learn from it? Yeah, only ups. Um, and no, I mean, wow. I, well, you know, I think uh, I showed up at Marriott in 2016. And I recall when I was hired, um, the, the hiring manager said to me, who ended up being my boss, you know, what you're hired into today might likely not be the thing you're doing a year from now because we're, you know, you, you've seen it in the news, we're trying to acquire Starwood. And so my, within my first two years, I started an industry that I didn't have any direct experience in. I'd spent 20 years as an architect designing retail stores. but. If you understand guest experience, the basic premises are all the same, um, except that your palate is slightly different working in hospitality than it is in, in retail. Nevertheless, uh, we inherited 11 brands at that time. And so and my role shifted to being responsible for the global design strategies for those premium distinctive brands, those lifestyle oriented brands. So that was Renaissance Tribute, Autograph Collection, um, uh, Weston, uh, Le Meridian, um, Gaylord Design Hotels, all these really they, cool brands. And I, I lucked out because they were really amazing uh, brands to work with. So if, if highs, some, some highs, you know, probably one of the most interesting things we did was we rethought the guest room for Weston. And that's an interesting story. If we can go down, you want to go down that rabbit hole? I want to hear it. I okay, mean, you piqued my curiosity. Yeah. So, you know, Weston was a great brand that we inherited from our acquisition of Starwood or, or Marriott. Then. You know, I, I'm, uh, I left Marriott in that role uh, just prior to the pandemic. So 
Um, this is a little bit, you know, old news or history, but we all traveled up to the uh, the guest room, the model room uh, in Stanford where Starwood was located. And we all stood in the guest room of Weston and go, yeah, this is a pretty good room. I mean, it's totally respectable. I mean, the furniture's great. The, you know, materials and finishes are great. But it didn't like scream that it was Weston, whatever Weston was supposed to be. And of course, you know, all brands are built on great ideologies and there's brand pillars upon which you're supposed to set up design strategies or, you know, look and feel of things or activations and programming, etc. So what we decided was Weston was built very much in the world of biophilic design, but it didn't really express that particularly strongly in this, this room. Um, and there are like 14 different principles upon which you can draw on to, to do biophilic design. And we said, well, you can't do 14, you know, in a space that's 350 square feet. So we're going to choose one or maybe two. But the one we landed on was to own light and not because we wanted to make a better light fixture that could hang on the wall, but because light is so critical to our um, uh, circadian rhythm that you get or don't get a good night's sleep based on your exposure to light and the kind of environment you live in. So I said, hey, listen, if we're selling the heavenly bed, which is supposed to give you a good night's sleep, we're putting really bad lighting in these rooms that counteracts having a good sleep because of the quality or the intensity or the color rendering, et cetera, then maybe we should focus on light. So we did. And um, we connected to Philips, uh, a great lighting company, and they had a, a wonderful system. And the room was fully designed to activate upon entry. So you walked in the door and this, this ceiling light, um, ceiling plane illuminated with, with perforations in it that looked like you were casting shadows or walking under a tree, sort of being in the forest. So, you know, forest bathing in a, in a way. Um, and then the sequence of lights continued to turn on automatically in the bathroom, over the bed, in the corner. And I called that the cognitive handshake, you know, so the room now is reacting to me. So there is some interesting sort of, you know, metaphysical connection between me and the space I'm activating. And there's all kinds of things that are in there from, you know, a sense of agency to the room and I being more connected. Um, and then it was a smart system, you know, so it could turn on and turn off and uh, it saved energy and did a lot of things. And it was actually really, really pretty amazing um, in terms of a new step. And it wasn't just focusing on the light fixture in terms of how beautiful it had to be, though they were. But it was more about how the quality of light directly affects experience and um, enhances or detracts from the possibility of having a good night's sleep. So that was a good one, I think. Uh, and, and I really enjoyed, really enjoyed doing that. That's fascinating. Well, and, you know, it's interesting, those nuances that are a part of, you know, the Westons of the world, the Renaissance, et cetera, are the things that show up and go viral on TikTok all the time. You know, it's, it's those types of the small things, the interesting things, the part that makes you feel inspired, for example, which could be something as simple as mood lighting That's or right. a, a forest experience over bathing or a pool that overlooks, you know, the, the a gorgeous landscape, whatever those things are, those are what that's what's blowing up certain boutique hotels, certain Airbnbs, certain rooms. So when you so you were at Marriott from 2016 until last year at uh, 2020 till 2020. Yeah. So right Just before COVID. Before this, yeah. Yeah. In fact, um, I remember being up in New York on a trip and uh, we were hearing all about this virus, you know, and we were in the hotel sort of not wanting to touch anything. And, and but, you know, everyone was still going about their business, you know, and then literally when I got back from that, it was probably the end 
uh, in March sometime um, within a couple of weeks. Yeah, the world had sort of imploded. You know, by that time, I'd already had decided I was leaving and I was on an exit strategy anyway. Uh, but um, yeah, it was then the whole world just, you know, shifted, like I said, on its axis. And, and that changed a lot of things. Right. Yeah. Now, it's, if I can add one thing. Yes, um, please do. You know, the, the, the upside and the downside, the flip side to this really interesting project, uh, you said, you know, the um, sort of the, the things that were great and maybe not so great. The largest challenge of trying to innovate is trying to move people out of a mindset that's built in an old paradigm. And a lot of it often has to do with language in terms of how you describe some things. So we would go out and uh, uh, there's a story I tell all the time about sitting across the uh, table from one of our developer friends. And um, I go through this great presentation, I think, and I talk about how this system is beautiful and it aligns with the circadian rhythms and how that's going to support and, you know, um, a better sense of well-being. And by the way, it's the Instagrammable moment that everyone's always looking for, et cetera, et cetera, because it is pretty um, there was a sense of awe when you swung that door open. You sort of stood there for a minute as this lights came on. It was actually pretty, you know, pretty cool. Um, and then he, the question gets through the presentation. He looks at me and goes, oh, tell me something. Is that thing you're going to do with the light going to give me a $2 ADR lift? And ADR is average daily rate. And, I, you know, my story goes, uh, like, that's just the wrong question <laughs> to be asking. And I, I, I said, I said, well, um, you know, I don't know exactly, but what I do know is that uh, there's lots of research to suggest that people will spend $35 a night more to look at the ocean than they will a brick wall. So if I use that as my metric of, you know, uh, my judgment, my yardstick to judge this thing, then I think you're going to do okay. And oh, by the way, you, I don't know how to put a number on right now, the idea that, that my spreadsheet, you know, for ROI includes things like return on experience, return on emotion, return on empathy, return on these things that probably aren't on your spreadsheet. And so in, in an experience-based economy, they're a little bit more difficult to um, to capture in terms of good data that says, you know, how do you feel exactly um, versus what did you buy and how long did you stay? Uh, but those are the things that are going to become increasingly more important in an experience-based economy is to understand that the place can be pretty cool, but if you're not left with that res like that residue of great, like you said, a great memory, um, then I think you just missed a big opportunity. How do you help someone who is stuck in that mindset of everything has to do with, you know, the, the ADR or the bottom line of all, yeah. how do you help them understand return on experience? Well, I think to your, to your point, you know, if you're talking about people's interest in, in using and promoting experiences for their own personal brands, um, you know, I was here kind of thing. And what, isn't that cool? Look at me and how life, my, how awesome my life is. Um, there's, you know, I, I'm not in the social media marketing world, but we know that you can draw some pretty direct connections to the fact that those kinds of engagements enhance the likelihood for a lot of chatter on social networks. And that then it's like free marketing. You know, you're, you're not you're getting all of your guests out there to market on your behalf. Now, if you can if you can track that, which I know they can, um, then it does lead to return visits or re intent to recommend. Uh, and those things are valuable. So you try to get people to understand that um, what is the cost of a customer to you? And um, if that cost can be, if you can identify what that is, then sometimes you can get beyond the upfront CapEx costs 
and or you try to get them to understand that in this new world we're living in, you have to stop thinking about things in terms of capex, um, you know, capital expenditures and how much that thing's going to cost, and start thinking of these things simply as required operational costs. So moving from a capex to an opex kind of mentality, and that sort of shifts the metrics a bit because they realize that it's just going to be something to stay relevant. It's going to be the thing they all need to do. And that just means, yeah, it's going to upend their system, probably. Is it going to give a whole lot of hurt? And may, you know, does transformation cause pain and discomfort? Most likely. Uh, but what's the option? You know, um, the option is extinction, and that's not a good one for most businesses. So let me ask you something that's probably going to, it may come across as really uh, capitalistically gory, but if you, so. Okay. I watch a lot of Game of Thrones, go. so I'm okay with this. <laughs> You know, I've never seen Game of Thrones. I went yeah. the Outlander route. It's like, more, I don't know, more artistic, but maybe because I haven't seen Game of Thrones, I, uh, I'm i biased. But um, so, okay, so here's my question. Right. So you just said to get someone to change that mindset and not go extinct, right? Mm. They have to be able to look at some of these other metrics like return visits or impressions or social chatter, things like that. But how often do you think, and this doesn't have to be quantified, but in your experience, how often are the people who are preventing or who are barriers to that sort of mental shifting, how often are they able to actually shift and get on board with the new ideas? Or how often do they just have to get moved off the bus? <laughs> well, this is like, okay, so now we're into the generational thing here. Um, okay. <laughs> because I know I, I do. I, I think... You know, the largest impediment to, to sort of innovation is is fear, right? I mean, people who are fearful and and that, you know, look, when you're building a hotel or building any piece of architecture, you know, it's a capitally intensive kind of thing. So you want to be pretty sure about the thing you're spending your money on. Um, but I, you get to this point where it, it lands in the lap of, of leadership. And I know this is your your bailiwick here um, to really understand that the I keep seeing the paradigm or you know the axis of the of the world is shifted and it has I think this this group of people to whom or, or who will be the guests eventually if not you know immediately in the next couple of years because I think they, they're moving pretty quickly um, they simply play by a different set of rules their expectations about how to engage and what they want are just very different and so I remember when, and this is probably back in the mid, let's say 2010 to 12, 13, 14, around there, everyone was all wound up about millennials. You know, in every sort of design conference you went to, it was the millennials. And what are we going to do about them? You know, they don't want to come to work at nine o'clock and they want to work. What? They want to work remotely? How does that work? And I remember this big like kerfuffle about, you know, this new way of thinking. And um, Gen Z is no worse, I mean, or no different. I mean, th their whole experience set has just been very, very different. And so part of the challenge is to get people to understand that in large part, my world, you know, my, the world of my work that I grew up in, you know, in, in, when I, in my 20s, it's very much gone. You know, it's like ancient history. If you think about this exponential change, you know, um, curve. Uh, it really is a long time ago when you think about how much has happened in just the past five years, let's say, for example. 
And so the challenge isn't to get a younger generation to fit into my worldview. The challenge really is for my worldview to be able to be flexible enough, agile enough, resilient enough to be able to shift and look backwards to a younger generation or look sideways or you know, whatever and adopt their worldview because that's the view that's likely going to drive the bus, you know. And so to the extent that someone can or cannot be flexible and adaptable and thinking about how to shift their own sort of, you know, mental constructs, I think will determine whether or not they should or shouldn't be on the bus because the bus is not only moving, it's like, like I said, it's like sitting in the front row of a front seat of a bullet train. It's crazy fast and only going faster. So you need to have that sense of flexibility. Um, and that's it's not easy to do that. I, I will contend that it's not easy to do that when we spend so much time um, building these sort of emotional, you know, constructs around having a sense of where things are going, you know, uh, and in the absence of that, that's naturally induces some fear. So it's, I think, getting rid of that fear. And if you can stay on the bus or stay in the boat or whatever you want to, <laughs> if, if you, if you can't, well, you know, there's lots of sharks swimming down there, you know, figure out how to swim. Right. I mean, yeah. like, well, and that's what I see so often is I see so many companies, even ones that I've worked for that were great in so many ways there. It's almost like they're throwing the football either right where, you know, the player used to be, not where he's headed, but also even if, if, if they're considered innovative, they're throwing it a foot in front, two feet in front. What's interesting to me is how many companies are trying, they're grasping at straws, trying to keep up with what the innovators are already doing, mm -hmm. right? I mean, I, I remember reading a memo from back in, I think it was 93, 94, something like that. And this company was saying uh, it was something about the, you know, the World Wide Web or the Internet and how, oh, this trend is is, you know, on the horizon and we should probably have a website. And, you know, for for years at that point, other companies had already been adopting the Internet. They'd already had they already had websites and all of these things. And so this company is struggling right now to to keep up with millennials who are already, may I remind, you know, myself and everybody, millenni the oldest millennial is 41 this year. Like this, is, that is not a new that that's not even touching, you know, a 30 year old market, 20 year olds, et cetera. So the point being, this company's target market right now is boomers and Xers. And they're really struggling really, really hard mm. to even become adaptable to millennials. And so I, I'm almost thinking your, your best strategy, considering how long it's taken to get to this point where you're even remotely relevant to millennials is to target 10 years younger. And by the time you're, you know, by the time your train finally catches up to those people, then they're already going to be the age that your current market is. And yep. so what, what, what do you think about that? Like, are companies shooting too close to, are they, yeah. they're so fearful they're shooting so close to home they're missing out? That's actually interesting because uh, years ago, um, years ago, probably when I first, I got to Marriott actually because I was out doing a number of um, public speaking gigs. I had written my book, Retail Revolution, and, and a lot of that sort of dealt in the end of the book about a fascination with the emerging technologies and this new generation and what they are doing with their devices besides, you know, being on them. Really, what what is the utility that they are 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 
um, deriving out of the use of this digital media. Um, and it was talking a lot about this idea of, of millennials and Gen Zs and this whole emerging group that was coming up. And uh, I've just cycled around myself there for a moment and I've lost my train of thought. <laughs> I'm going, what the heck was that? <laughs> there was a really good idea in here, I'm sure. Um, I'm hoping you edit, but maybe you don't edit. No, no, we're, this <laughs> okay. is all in. So we were talking about how like how our companies throwing the ball too close. Like, oh, yeah. Are they, so, yeah. There we go. Thank you. The football analogy always brings me around. Um, and my, my uh, analogy was you've got to figure out a system that your wide receivers have a kind of sort of destination in the back left corner of the end zone. And you're going to be launching the Hail Mary pass on virtually every play you do. And and your receiver has to find his way through all of that difficulty and all those problems and all those sort of upheavals in moments of upheaval and hopefully get to the place where you're going to launch and they're going to land at the same place at the same time. But it means you have to be thinking the long game on most days. It doesn't mean strategy needs to be long game. Uh, tactics obviously become very short term. The challenge with that is, and I think in principle it's the right way to think about it, but I think the challenge is, let me use an example. Um, I was coaching a, uh, or mentoring a group of students um, at the hotel school of The Hague and doing a sustainability challenge of which my team actually came in third place. And so they were all very excited. And the the problem, the people who set the problem said, this is a, a, a challenge to determine where these hotels, what a hotel is going to be like in 2050. And at the onset, I said, 2050, that's like almost 30 years from now. I don't have any idea how you can project 30 years into the future, given if I look at just the past 10 years and all of the things that have happened that I would have never imagined uh, to, to project that far out to 2030, because the technologies that we live today are going to be so different than what we have then that it's, we're so ill-adapted to thinking in this exponential mindset, you know, this, this sort of state of continual flux where we're, we're trying to navigate what is legitimately, um, literally unknown territory, be, you know, but by that point, you know, plan B could be that we're all living on Mars. So I think what you do is you set up these possible scenarios and then you drive the bus down each of those roads like and say, how does the that end to up? Make that a reality, what does the end of right? that look like? I mean, if, yes, sure, to some extent, the technology has to come um, from different places and obviously we're reliant on more than one company to make a certain thing a reality. But if you think about it, I mean, heck, look at Elon Musk. It doesn't matter what you think of the guy, but he had a vision in his head that this, you know, we were going, we're going to have the ability for the civilian to travel to space and heck he's doing it. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's, it's that type of vision that can be the stepping stones to build the future we want. So if you say, you know, what does a hotel look like by 2050? If someone, if there's a hotel visionary who becomes, heck, maybe Elon Musk will be the hotel visionary and then it'll be a hotel on the moon. <laughs> who knows? Uh, be, or further, he's going <laughs> to, he wants to take us out of the solar system. Or that, yeah. You know, you, Elon's a pretty interesting guy, right? For, for sure. I think he's also the richest man in the world now. Um, 
I think, yeah, he bumped Bezos out of that, that even though. Did you see his tweet when he bumped Bezos? No, I didn't. No. <laughs> I can't remember the exact wording, but it was something super terse. It was basically like, oh, that happened. <laughs> like, yeah. He just didn't care. He didn't give a shit about what anybody thought. It was great. Yeah, it's it's just, yeah, it's funny. Uh, it, it is, it's really hard to try to imagine. And that's why I keep saying it's, for me, it's a scenario mapping, you know, situation. Um, and it relies on, on visionary leadership. I mean, people who have an idea. I've often thought that for a lot of companies, that's just, it's too difficult. There's too much embedded in the sort of infrastructure of the company. I mean, in, let's say Marriott, for example, they're the largest hotel company in the world, probably over 7,800, you know, different properties. Uh, all around the world, um, and just systems that are in place that are really difficult to dismantle. You, you just imagine. Um, so I've often said, you know, maybe what you need to have is if you're if you're a company that's got some capital, to have this group of folks, you know, who whose job it is is just to think crazy thoughts, you know, and try to do the research around them and just have these experimental labs, you know, where you're just trying to throw that that long bomb every day and try to see, you know, where it goes. Um, but I think that goes back to like almost, you know, question number one is this, this sense of compulsive curiosity um, that you need to be curious, you know, you need to want to try to understand. And I think the the bottom line is, is that you can create a strategic idea for where you'll want to be and allow circumstance of the present future present to dictate how that actually unfolds, you know, and, and meaning that um, the baseline strategy can be sound, but materials finishes how you what the building industry is like, then I don't know. Um, and innovation in the end isn't really about how it looks, it's about how things work. And that seems to be the key. If you can determine how the, you go through the process of doing this thing, uh, then I think it can take almost any form. And the form is built on the available resources and technologies you have in the moment. But it's really about changing behavior, I think, you know, whether that's retail or hospitality or anything else, you know, corporate, corporate behavior um, as well, is what do you want long range? What's the strategic direction and the foundations on which you're going to build? What are those principles? And then um, allow it to happen in real time. And going back to the idea, flexible enough that it can shift and change because it, you know, the world will shift again and you just need to be ready. Mm. Yeah, I love I love that picture of balance and flexibility is probably the best word, right? Because you can envision these constructs or things that you believe might be true or might be in existence in 30 years. But if you build the foundations and have that visionary leadership to say, we know we're headed somewhere, we're not sure exactly where yet, but we have to be ready to shift quickly and, and, and now. And so one of the things that comes to mind is I was on a call with a client recently and we were talking about this idea of category design, which uh, Christopher Lockhead is is famous for. And, and he and I talk about this all the time, but we were t essentially this organization is trying to become a category leader in their field of you know data and tech consultancy and we were discussing this 
this essentially this idea where the company could become a leader, not just in the current field. They don't just need to be competing with all of the other, you know, the, the big name consultancy firms, they need to create a new category with content, with, you know, videos and, and all of these different things. So it's essentially they've built a great product, great tech, but they don't want to smash heads with their competitors who are bigger or have more resources. So how do you create that unique that niche, that flexibility, and, a, and an avenue that is easily changeable or easily shiftable. And for them, it's content, right? Because that, that is something that's easily malleable and shiftable and can, can work with the new flavors of the times, whatever that might be, socially, culturally, politically. Yeah. What's fascinating about that is, um, uh, well, so there's two things. One, a, a term I want to introduce into our conversation. And uh, the second thing, uh, which I'll get to in a second, uh, talking about Peloton for a second. I'm a bit of a Peloton junkie. I've had my bike for, you know, a couple of years now, and uh, I really need to get back on it because I haven't ridden in about you know, three weeks now. I've just been really slacking off. But um, I did a presentation at the National Retail Federation uh, big show in New York, and I had the um, VP of, of their store design uh, working with us. And in our pre-conversations, she said, you know, Peloton's not really uh, a bike company. We're a content company. The bike gives us, no pun intended, a vehicle, you know, for distributing content. Um, but really the key here is content because you can ride any bike. You could ride an old, you know, like big wheel thing if you want, three-wheeler down the street, as long as you have the, the app, you know, and, and so you're buying the content. And there's, so they're a content delivery system that happens to come through the use of this bicycle, which is, I think, a good bike. So that's, that's interesting um, because the bike will change, you know, but the value of the content Okay, the manner in which you're going to deliver it might also change, but you can have the vehicle for transmitting the idea, but without the idea, you just you've got nothing. You've got an empty box. It doesn't make any sense. So, um, the content is yeah, content is king. We've heard that before. Uh, the the term I wanted to bring in here was a word uh, term I came into uh, contact with last fall called cottywomple. Is cottywomple? What in the world? Cottywomple is a great word, um, and uh, it is. It, uh, it means to travel in a purposeful manner towards a vague destination. And I love that because that's kind of like your, you know, your use of the football analogy. <laughs> you know, can you can you set the long range goal and go there with passion and certainty, but you're not exactly sure where you're going in the end, you know? And I, I mean, make that my mantra. Yeah. Cuddywomple. Cuddywomple. Well, <laughs> you look it up. It's like a bona fide, you know, word. It's, it's out there for real. So it, and it's C-O-D-D-I-W-O-M-P-L-E. Cuddywomple. There you go. That's amazing. That's worth this whole conversation. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have to, I admit, I came in contact um, reading a book called Flux by a woman named April Rinne, R-I-N-N-E. And she uses the term cottywomple. And I thought that is just the greatest term ever. Now, ironically, if you dig it up online, there's a cottywomple beer, a cottywomple place to stay, cottywomple band. I mean, I think people have appropriated the term in all kinds of really funny ways, cottywomple cabin. Um, so there's all kinds of uses for it now. But I just love that word, you know, purposeful direction with a vague destination or a purposeful you know, manner in, in 
but moving towards a vague destination. I think that's kind of sort of where we are. Well, it's a, it's a perfect summary of what every single CEO and designer and visionary should be modeling every choice they make off of. Because you, and it, to some extent, yeah. if you are the visionary, you are traveling in a vague destination because if you're not the one defining the path, you're going to be second or third or fourth or fifth, or you're going to be on the, you know, the laggard. Right. Well, you know, and funny, having read your book, I, I will, uh, um, I will agree with the idea that uh, it starts there in senior leadership, but the idea that, um, that these leaders have to be able to say, I don't know. I mean, I'm not really sure. I have a good inclination, you know, um, not that I always want to trust my gut instinct on certain things, but to be able to sort of level with people and be transparent and not, in, and that, I don't think that would have ever been a successful strategy in a corporate world to be able to say, okay, yeah, I'm, I'm a leader here, but I don't actually know the answer to this question, you know, and, um, and I think we can collaborate to find the best answer under the circumstances, but uh, that might have been like corporate suicide years ago, but I think going into the future, I think it's perfectly reasonable for humans who happen to be in leadership roles to be able to say, I don't, ha I don't know. I mean, I can't tell. I don't have my crystal ball today, and I don't know that even if I had it, I'd be able to find the right answer. I think and if that, you were my leader yeah. and you said that, I would be so... I would trust you so much more because, heck, nobody knows where we're headed. It's, you know, if you say as a leader to a Gen Zer. Hey, you know what? I know this part of what we need to do. You know, I know our day-to-day -day tactics. I can generally paint a picture of where we're going. I can paint you the midterm. This is where we're headed, at, you know, within a year. But you know what? I have no fucking clue where we're going to be in, in 10 years. Can you help me vision it? Then yeah. I'm going to love you, you know? I'd love to see that like on some some graphic. Okay, get working on this, Hannah. Um, <laughs> just to, because like, okay, here's the things we know for sure. Dinosaurs, uh, you know, the airplane. Gravity. Gra <laughs> gravity. Yes, the sun that we think is going to be around for a while, but maybe longer than we will be. Uh, here's the things that we know right now today. And here's like this whole other gray and the, the weird irony about the gray, misty, foggy, unclear thing is actually to infinity. <laughs> so yes. you, can, you can look at the the length of the known universe is being, I don't know, like 4.6 billion years or something like that, or 6.3 billion years or whatever the universe is projected or assumed to be, have been around for. And that's a long time. And the present is, you know, relatively short, but um, the future is unimaginably long. And so if you look at, that's why I say I'd love to see this as a graph, right? Here's the things we know. Here's the things we, we, we know for sure and the things we know today. But the things we don't know, good Lord, that's like into infinity. And, and that, I think, you got to reckon with that idea, you know, that it's just stuff that we can't predict, although people make a living on being, you know, people who are able to predict, you know, the future. So, And we have to reckon with leaders who are still caught in that in-between of, do I, you know, be the strong person who everybody can look to and who has all the answers, or do I be transparent and be humble and be authentic and say, you know what? I, I don't know. 
and take that gan- that gander, you know? I well, just used the word gander. Yeah. I haven't used that one. Take, take a gander. You got to pull gander out of the closet sometime, you know, and, and use it in the same context as cottywampling. If you could do, I was cottywampling and I gandered. No, I don't know. That's going to be the title for the show, David. Well, just the cottywomples, the ganders and something. Yeah. yeah okay. We'll have to that. <laughs> That's my job. I just give you good content. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, and you know, you said the key word for me, and um, is trust, and that I think is is the you know, I have sort of put some brain power to thinking about what makes good leaders, you know, and one key defining feature would be trust, and built into that, I mean, or that's built on um, a lot of. Uh, that's built on a lot of different things, and. My mic is going out. So, but authenticity and transparency, yeah, sure, those are are uh, evident um, and critical. Uh, communications critical. You know, if if you can't communicate with your employees or your colleagues, and you or you resist communicating with them, then that leaves a vacuum. That that and in that vacuum, people create narratives because they want to fill, you know, some and have a sense of understanding so that they can have a sense of agency or, or, or stem the sense of impending fear because they don't know what's going to happen. Um, and, and once you don't have that, once you don't have that open, straightforward, honest and transparent communication, then a lot of stuff happens. That's really unfortunate. People begin to look at each other different ways. You wonder what's going on. Is there a problem? Well, there may be no problem. Um, so timely communication is really critical, right? And how to do that. Uh, and then it's, can I trust you from the point that you bring to the table a le- level of experience? May not be exactly in my area, but you've got this other bank of experience that I can rely on as being um, relevant uh, and and usable if, if seen through, like I say, a different set of glasses, you know, at my world. Um, and, and that those things are super critical. So trust, I think, has a lot to do with that sense of communicating and being straightforward, which I know, you know, the Gen, uh, the Gen Z group um, generation is is uh, is big on it, you know, and they'll call you up pretty quickly. If you if you if they see that there's a disconnect, you know, or a dichotomy between what you're saying and what you're doing, you're done, you know, because. And I don't know that in, in going back to the early conversation in my 20s, I think I simply took a lot of what people said just as is and, and didn't really have that critical analysis, you know, and eyes wide open in terms of, yeah, come on, that that can't possibly be true. Um, I think I just went along with it, I think, a lot more because I think we were cultured and we were raised to just go along that thing. I want you to do this. You know, your parents said why? Because I said so. <laughs> and yeah. That, that was the end of the game. Oh, <laughs> all right. Well, in that case, I guess I'll just do that, you know? And I think we grew up in that sort of mentality, you know, where um, you were supposed to do things and trust in authority simply because they were. But I think in the absence of information, that seemed reasonable in the absence of a, or in the presence of abundant information and abundant ability to learn and, and discern more and sort of get under the hood of what's happening around you more. Um, I think that's why this generation is particularly empowered to be able to look at people in leadership roles and go, no, that doesn't fly. 
and it not only doesn't fly, but like everyone in the social network world will, will out you in a moment. And so if you really want to be relevant and remain viable, you can't be, you know, you can't jump on the Black Lives Matter bandwagon because you think now is a good time to talk about it because it'll leverage some sort of sense of power and, and because there's all kinds of things that are happening. It doesn't fly. It's just a bad strategy for survival. No kidding. Yes. Well, Okay, so have final question. I have oh, to ask go. you this because we have we have broken open this this chasm, and I mean, you and I agree on so many of these things. I think if you ha if if there were someone else sitting in your place right now, and they had you know we, we had had this conversation about you know categories and 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 the world basically shifting to irrelevance in fifteen years if companies don't change and blah blah blah. I, you know, like I could have gotten into a fight at this point with someone because this is not stuff people like to hear. So I make this claim uh, like at every on the beginning of every podcast, I say, if you don't have a native digital on your board of directors, your leadership team, or at least one that you pay to pester you like a fly into your ear, your business isn't going to survive. What do you think about that? And, and like, what should what should companies take away from that, from your perspective of someone not in my generation? Well, um, let me try to refresh. And you don't have to you don't have no. to agree, by the way. <laughs> no, no, actually, I do agree. It's funny. I had on my podcast um, uh, a longtime friend of mine, Christian Davies. Uh, he's a design lead for a company called Bergmeier out of Boston. And we were talking about this very issue. And it was like. Okay, companies got to understand, and I don't know why they haven't quite yet figured it out, that a Gen Z you know, kid who's 22, 24 years old should be in their board of, well, I'm not sure board of directors exactly, but they should be invited into these leadership roles where they're sharing their experience. Um, and I think, again, old school thinking would say, well, what does a kid know? I mean, I've got like 45 or 50 years in this business. I've been down the block and I've been to this rodeo a lot, you know, and I think there's a lot to be said for experience. Um, but what I also know is that the, or my, intu my intuition tells me that there's a lot more leaders out there who rely on a set way of believing the world spins. Um, and they've relied on that because it served them well up until now uh, but to, to continue to rely on that sort of traditional approach to thinking about the way you ran your business isn't going to fly anymore so why shouldn't you have you know someone who's 20 years old or 19 years old or 18 or 17 you know keep going down right because i think you know what you see in that group is a fundamentally different understanding of the way the world spins now and to not have them um at least sharing experience. It's what you do as a leader when you hear their experience set, their narratives that they build around what's relevant and all of the issues that they face is then your job is to say, okay, now if that's true, if, if that's one of the paths I'm going to go down on my experience or my, my experience mapping, you know, possibilities, then what? Uh, but to not have that in the room seems to me to be just nutty, you know, um, you, you know, you get these 50 somethings all sitting around the table, you know, dre dreaming up the world <laughs> that they've had no connection to in a the same sort of profoundly immersive way that Gen Z will naturally have because they've never known anything but that. And I I, I love to see someone who's in their late 50s who's like 
a total social media maven. I'm sure there are a few out there. Um, but I don't think that they fly across the keyboard with two fingers or two thumbs as fast as any kid who's 16 years old. Um, and I just think that is something you can have, you know. Thank you for that perspective, because I, I do think you brought up something very crucial, and that is even if you're not ready to take the step of putting someone of a young age in a leadership role, you're not ready to have them on your board of directors, which I actually spoke with a company earlier this week that does have a 19 year old on their board of directors, which is amazing. Um, but if you're not ready for that, if, you know, if, if these companies aren't ready to truly put a Gen Zer in that position, at least get their advice, right? At least have a voice there. Maybe it's periodic. Maybe it's, they come in and listen to a conversation of those 50 or 60 year olds sitting around a table. And then the person who invited them takes them to coffee right afterwards and says, I want you to tell me what you thought about each of the things we were discussing, because I want your advice. Like that's even just that, even the first, that first step would mean that would make the difference between a company possibly missing something so obvious that their business goes under for it or actually choosing to make a change. You know, I think it's interesting. Um, and this may be parsing on semantics here or, you know, on, on words. I'm not sure it's necessarily looking for advice. Because I think the advice does come tagged to experience um, within the sort of um, the, the constructs of my business, whatever my business is, you know, widgets or who knows what. Um, but what I what I think we want to engage in is the discussion about experience. And I don't mean work experience, life experience, or even sort of career experience. I mean, life experience as lived today because my lived experience and someone who's you know 16 to 25 years old or, or thereabouts um, their lived experience is very different and so what i'm really interested in is tell me about your lived experience tell me about what's driving your decision making tell me about um, how you come to conclusions and stay connected to brands how do you communicate all those those kinds of things so um, i think then you take that sense of experience from which you should be able to call down to a number of key factors that should drive decision making about, oh, well, if this is the lived experience they, they live or this experience that they live, and this is the expectation sets that they bring to the next experience, what do we then need to do? So it may seem like parsing, you know, a little bit. Um, but it may be harder for someone, uh, you maybe will disagree about this, but it may be harder for someone who's 17, 18, 19, 22 to give someone advice. But I think they can certainly unload how they how they see the world um, and through their through their lens of experiences that they, they engage in every day. And I think that gives them should give people in leadership positions tools to be able to help structure strategic approaches to capturing their attention, maintaining a relationship with them for the long term. Thank you for that distinction. I think that's very, very critical, right? Because most companies, you're right, I don't think they would just invite that 17-year-old, 18-year-old to give advice. Very good point. And maybe by by giving them an open door to share those lived experiences, they begin to understand that 
possibly that 17, 18, 19 year old is someone who has enough wisdom to perhaps be sent to uh, through an apprenticeship program or sent to school on behalf of that company and to come back and share that advice or the wisdom they've gained working elsewhere or, you know, gaining other lived experiences. So I, I think that's a great a great, great point that there maybe the easiest way to to approach this or get a foot in the door in a sense with this idea is what if what if there was simply the invitation to learn from someone's lived experience on yeah. both sides of the table? There, I think that's key, right? It really goes both ways, and I don't think, and this is probably one of the challenges that people of, let's say, older generations have when they look to Gen Z's or when we craft these stereotypical views around Gen Z's or we used to be, like I said, millennials, was this um, this assumption that the younger generation, they got it all figured out, you know, and you older guys. Yeah. OK, I get it. I get it. You know, in your day, you know, used to walk uphill both ways to school, you know, with no shoes and we lived in a hole and, you know, those stories that you hear. Um, but it really does have to go both ways. But um, that means on both sides of that line. And it's interesting. It's not atypical for any sort of basic conflict resolution, you know, of any, whether it's between fighting parties or government groups or whatever, is be willing and open to see the opinion or perspective of the other side. So, and to be able to take, uh, be able to cross-check your perspective as well, you know, and, and perspective taking is huge, you know, can I see their point of view? Hmm. You know, and then, and instead of shaking one's head and going, nah, it doesn't work to be able to say, or find some place to say, huh, I've never seen it like that before, you know, and that would be great, right? It's in both in both directions, but both have to be willing, you know, to be able to share lived experiences um, and, and realize that there's value, although the context of those lived experiences may be very different. That is a perfect way to close out this conversation, David. I have had a blast. I I think this type of conversation where we get to go through the ups and downs and we get to, I mean, heck, we're, we're doing that right now. What we just talked about, being able to share across the, I was going to say the table, but this is not a table. Uh, you, you know what I mean? <clears throat> share across the, uh, share across the remotely screen here what we're <laughs> it's a good one yes it is a good one i i just think this this is the type of conversation that gets us there and that opens doors so i really appreciate you being able to just come into my space and we have you know commonalities we have differences but we can still come to a, not even a middle ground. It's not even the best word, but just it almost feels like this type of conversation is just pushing the envelope of what is possible, like where we should be thinking and, and headed. And I'm grateful that you've gone on that journey with me. Well, it's been great doing it. And listen, you know, if you have the mindset of a, of a learner, you know, then there shouldn't be anything fearful in, in turning to someone who's, you know, years younger than you to say, teach me how to do that. And I don't mean just teach me how to, you know, get navigate my computer screen when something goes wrong, but um, teach me about your experience. And I think that's, uh, you know, that goes back to this idea of being curious. And I think if you're talking about great leadership, you know, 
one of the components is curiosity and, and, and having it and wanting to know and understand and resolve, you know, resolve whatever those conflicts are. Thanks for listening to the Native Digital, Native Analog Show. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd really appreciate it if you would subscribe, leave a rating and review, and tell your friends. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time. Yeah.